This podcast was proudly produced by NZ Audio Editors. For all your editing services, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.nzaudioeditors.com. Ryan J. Melson and Greg Mole from One Plan for Retirement would like to welcome you to the NZ Guide to Financial Freedom. In this podcast, we'll break down the psychological tools and financial framework you need to live the life you want to ensure you don't run out of money before you run out of life. Well, I think I think it's important, Ben, before we kick it off, we, we acknowledge that lovely ambience that's going on in the background. Oh, you got to love the CBD, don't you? Oh, yes. You can't get down the road, there's a man with a jackhammer, all right? And cones, lots of road cones. I added 10 minutes to my journey um, because they closed the whole road. And there was a poor lady, she had a florist, yep. and um, relied solely on foot traffic, had no social media presence, and no one walks past her. So she's gone? I, would say, I haven't checked. Yeah. Um, but COVID yeah. as well, that was before COVID as well. Yeah, so. no, it's brutal. Yeah, it's it's absolutely brutal. My um, brother actually had a place just down from your office in Aotea Square, and they dug up the street to do drainage, which, you know, you've got to do. You're in the city, you've got to fix the stuff. And his, his turnover dropped by a third, and when they fixed the road, it only came out back up about 10% of it. So, hmm. yeah, it's, you know, you, you've gone from a profitable business to a break-even business, and you can't fix it. There's actually um, the, the guy that founded KFC um, had a shop and was in a perfect location outside the motorway. Mm-hmm. And then they introduced, they changed something, and then he, his business drastically changed. And he was committing, like considering committing suicide, and he had like a few hundred dollars to his name and yep. social security check. And then he went out and asked a hundred or so um, businesses if they wanted to use his recipe for chicken. Um, and then he started building his business from that. Oh, well, there you go. All so right. maybe the florist lady is going to be the next KFC. <laughs> Well, I just hope the best for you. You know, it's pretty tough, especially, you know, in those businesses where you've taken a lease. Because, mm. you know, it's not like the lease is $1,000 a month. That's, you know, if you've signed up for five years, it's 60 grand, you know, or, or whatever the number happens to be. Mm. So for for those, and that's why I think retailers get it really tough, especially in um, in cities where they're do doing a lot of stuff like Auckland's doing now. Because there's nowhere to go, right? You've still mm. got to pay your landlord. You've still got your overhead. Mm. You've still got your people. Um, so it's brutal. Oh, it's rough. Mm. And then you you stack on COVID that because I, I mean I'm happy. I come from the mindset of like you you whatever the the cards are you play your hand. Mm. But you think in retail, even though you had a year after the COVID, and then like how would you pivot that? I mean, you could go commerce. You could you could have contactless delivery. But there's some that are just like just stuck and closed and just stuff, and just that's their life now. But anyways, that's not that positive. That's cheerful, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> I'm sure they'll be okay. You know, there, there's You're not, no... not an undertaker, eh? No, not at all. No, I, I just I think that the ambience putting me in the uh, in putting the, the mindset. Yeah. Right. Well, we'll talk about you then. That's why we're here. Yeah. So, um, just to give context to the audience, like in terms of your story and like how you ended up starting building better business communities and forefronting the NZ leaders and yeah, how'd you get here? Where did it all start? Oh, look, it's a windy path, and and they always are. You know, I, I, um, quite some time ago, I, I did five years in Otago with a view that I was going to be a lawyer. Mm. I did that overseas for a while and came back here and realised that law wasn't for me. What kind? Uh, commercial and litigation. 
Cool. Yeah. But the you know the business model of you know tracking your life in six minute increments for the rest of your life just um, looked a little bit bleak actually. <laughs> You're the undertaker now. Yeah, yeah. So I thought, oh, I'm not going to do that. And so I ended up um, got very lucky, got a great job at ASB in the marketing department, and then from there became the commercial director at Auckland Rugby. And that was great fun. And that was a deliberate choice because I was not an Auckland boy and I wanted to get connected in the city. Um, so that was great for me and, and, and great fun. And then from there, um, we started the first of our businesses and we've been running businesses now for 20 years. Some of them have gone well and some have gone less well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that, like the less well. No one, everyone likes to look good. And, and oh, I, yeah. just, I think there's a lot of value in the lessons. Your ability to execute now comes from those experiences yeah, as well. Yeah, so, so we were, we, uh, were building um, single-level brick-and-tile houses before the GFC. Um, at the same time that we were running, I was running a consulting business with a bunch of staff. And about two years before, there was a bunch of rules changed um, from central government. And, um, and that was actually, I believe, the start of the housing crisis. So it got really, really hard to get your um, plans through council, even if you were you know, doing single-level, pretty simple stuff. Um, I mean, literally went from six weeks to get a plan signed off to six months. And they introduced a whole lot of extra fees, reserve contributions. And land over that period increased, moved from about $200,000 for a section to about 350000 for a section in, in a really short period of time. Mm. So the economics really shifted. And that was – so the property crash – for GFC was actually started two years before the GFC happened. And so I had one business going really, really well, which was the consulting business, and the other business um, that ended up owing a million bucks. Mm. And um, I was a lot younger then, of course, well, at least 10 years younger. Mm. Uh, and so I hadn't been in that situation before, and so I turned to business to a business coach to get help because I just couldn't figure out how to navigate it. It was, you know, you're looking at losing your house, you're looking mm. at all that sort of stuff, right? So it's not that pleasant. And um, through that process, I ended up with a, with a very good business coach, and from there, actually started working with them as a business partner. Once we navigated the bits we had to navigate, and so we did transformational change um, business coaching work for about five or six years. But I was tending to work with bigger companies, mm. and what I noticed was that um, they were great, they're awesome, but it's really, really hard to change a traditional company into a more nimble company. Mm-hmm. For a variety of reasons, right? You know, just because of the way they're designed and all that. Not not the people. The people are actually quite keen. But so um, I decided um, about five years ago that I really wanted to focus on mid market and specifically emerging mid market businesses, which is that two to twenty million turnover range. Why? What made you get to that? Uh, Big into town has two things going on, right? So the first is that immunity to change. They really, really struggle to change their business models, so they've got a lot of challenges here. And the other is that the that the business models they're operating are being disintermediated or, or they're being smashed, right? So if I'd said to you 10 years ago, look, this um, incredibly brave woman was going to buy stuff for a dollar, you would have looked at me like I was mad. You know, the thing was worth several hundred million at the time. So big end of town, you've either got industries and complete turmoil or businesses that some a lot of businesses just can't change. And then you go to the other end of town, small, you've got some businesses that are have a natural size. So those are the people who make our coffee, cut our hair, fix our car, do all that sort of stuff, right? And and um, they're actually the companies we like dealing with too, right? Um, and then you've got what I call the happy and small. So they could have bigger businesses, but they're designing them for their life. Mm. And if you want to know who they are, just go to a 
boat ramp on a Saturday or a Sunday in summer, right? You know, <laughs> and you know everyone talks about work life balance in corporate. These are business owners who've got work life balance. Mm. You know, I'm not saying they've got an easy life, but they've designed their life and their business to fit together. <laughs> so they're the happy and small. So if you look at um, you know if you look at the 2020s. You know, February. I can re- distinctly remember February last year. We're sitting there with, a, with at the New Zealand Leaders event, and we were talking about our two biggest challenges. So, challenge one: finding good people. Challenge two: uh, this was going to be the most um, transformational decade, most changing decade business-wise in Western history outside of war and the Spanish flu. Well, we know what happened with the flu thing, right? Mm. Um, and that's because all these technologies that are there are now starting to land. So, you know, AI is landing. Um, you know, voice to text is landing, um, electric cars are landing. You know, you look at what's happening with Luke over at Fingermark. I mean, you know, that just not sorry, Luke at um, Lightforce. You look at, you know, he, he had a small business doing solar panels two, three years ago. Now he's one of the biggest businesses in the country doing it. It's just taking off. So, so all of that's happening, right? So, um, so when you look at that and you go, well, what's going to be, what's going to make New Zealand prosperous at the end of this decade, it's actually the mid-market companies who are small enough they haven't got immunity to change baked in, but big enough they've got resources and appetite to grow. So that was my focus. And they're, and they're generally privately held, and they're generally run by good buggers, mm. you know, which you know, I think there is a good buggers rule in business. You know, Try and just do business with good buggers and you actually have a good life, right? Yeah, or was it play with dogs, get fleas, or whatever? Yeah, yeah, well, that's that's the other side. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think it's a, like as a CEO, they start they start getting desensitized to the plight of the individual because they're not experiencing it. It's like even for us, just the like I I, I ate meat, but you think about animals, you know, it's mm. quite quite a hardship for them, and we're desensitized to it because we're not in front of it. Yeah. Um. So you see that it makes sense that the privately owned that are mid that not too big they still have a Certain level of good buggery, yeah. And there's also uh, good CEOs as well. So I'm not shouting. Oh no, no, of course. You know, it's just it's there's different types of complexity when you get a business move past that 50 or 60 staff, right? Um, And then when you really get into the hundreds of staff, you know, vast amounts of the work is actually getting humans aligned and working properly and behaving properly and doing that sort of stuff. Mm. Yeah. What do you What do you see? What goes wrong with these mid-sized businesses, or goes well? Um. I think that the, there's a couple of things going on at the moment. Um, I mean, there's some very unlucky ones at the moment, so let's just acknowledge those, those who are in tourism and yeah. and like with COVID, right? So, so you know, you've, you've got to separate the COVID question because that's more like the Battle of the Somme if you're to use the sort of Anzac Day, you know, parallel. You know, just if you're in the wrong place in the shells land, it doesn't matter how good a soldier you are or how good a business person you are, right? Yeah. And so... You know, in business, we talk about the balance sheet and the P&L. In simple terms, if you think from home, you know, it's how much asset do I have that I can actually go and borrow on uh, or, or, you know, how much cash do I have in the bank versus how much am I earning? And the problem is that for a lot of those businesses, I've gone in and I've taken everything off the balance sheet. There's nothing else that they've got to feed this thing, right? Mm. And you've got to remember, you know, New Zealand's quite an unusual place banking-wise in the Western world. And, and it's, we're unusual because of the level of personal guarantees required by a banking system. And we're unusual by the level of funding leveraged against houses to fund business. Mm. And so people don't give up businesses easily here because the cost of loss is much, much higher than it is in places like the United States and South Africa and, okay. and England, right? 
So, and that's why a lot of those retailers are, are hanging on, right? Because they've got personal guarantees. Um, yeah. You know, they're going to get bankrupted. New Zealand being bankrupted is a really bad thing. You know, in some of the other countries, not so much. So, so that um, so outside of that, I think um, th- there's there's several challenges going on at the moment. One is um, actually getting hold of good people is really really hard. And so, this is a global issue. It's not just New Zealand, but you know, if, particularly if you're um, looking for people involved in technology, AI, mm. um, or even just support staff. And so that's why we're seeing a change in the business models that people are operating now. So you know, I look around our room, and I would say, you know, we've got we've got eighty odd companies involved at the moment. I would say sixty to seventy percent of them have staff or resource based overseas now. Now, of course. They're not running shops and they're not running farms, so they don't have to have people on. But, you know, particularly if you want to access either at one end um, administration at scale, at the other end um, high-tech resource around um, uh, AI or that sort of stuff. Um, you know, you, w- I look around our room now and, you know, we've got some people here that we work with who might have 20 or 30 staff in New Zealand, but they've actually got 50 or 60 overseas. Hmm. And so, so getting hold of really good people is going to be – is going to be and will remain a challenge for quite some time. Mm. Um, the, another one I'm seeing is uh, for some people there, they're really, really struggling to understand how to change and move as quickly as the market does. And that's, you know, I'm 55, so I'm talking people sort of predominantly people my age and, my, and, and older so the the way that their competitors are building their companies now and the way that they're approaching their markets now are very different and they just can't um, – it's a bit like you've grown up without a cell phone and everyone else has grown up with one, you know, yeah, which yeah. is actually my generation. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, the old I, bricks. Yeah, yeah. I, well, before bricks, you know. So I, I actually had to take my kids down to the Museum of Transport and Technology and said, look, this is a punch card. This is how you used to – program computers and they go what <laughs> go yeah that's when i was at school we were modern and we had punch cards you know yeah. um you know we didn't have you know so 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 the thing is when you grow up and you're used to it you've got a different perspective mm. and so that's part of it how do i adjust but the other part is it's much much harder to understand your market if you don't live in your market like that okay so um, you know, a really good example is say you really want to enter into the Philippines and, and we, we have some companies around us who do a lot of work in the Philippines and, and in Vietnam. And, um, you know, there's a great myth in New Zealand that we're really technologically advanced. I mean, it's complete <laughs> rubbish. The last time yeah. we led the world was when we put the EPOS yeah, system in say. 1982 or something, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, no, we're behind. And so um, in those territories, they have mobile wallets on their phones and it's all QR code for payment, right? it's really hard for us who don't deal with that all the time to understand how that works and what Mm. that means, you know. And so, um, you know, in those territories, often the biggest customers of McDonald's and KFC and people like that are actually the trade me's of the world who do discount vouchers online to keep people engaged. And then that goes to their phone and then they go and redeem it, KFC or McDonald's or wherever they're going, with with e-vouchers on their phone that's going into their mobile wallet, right? Mm. And so it's really hard for us to even understand that. Um, if you go to the Philippines, for example, they don't see that they have the internet. They operate almost entirely in times inside of Facebook and world, right? So, so for a lot of people who are trying to expand, particularly overseas, it's really hard for us to get out of our Kiwi context and into a global context. 
Makes sense. Like we let's say okay, we there's a, a business that's lacking in terms of finding the resources and the right people. Mm. How do how do they facilitate that, or where they look? Is there con- certain countries because they're very good at IT? There's a low cost. Does that play a part, or is it me- really just a means of finding the right person? I think you come down a little bit low on it. I think the first thing you got to do, what we're seeing now is you know um, what we call a smartphone model for business. So the old model of building a business is what we call the factory model, mm. and you used to hear it in the language, right? So you'd hear things like. Um, you know, we've got to break down the silos. We have a human resources issue. All of the language we used around running these companies was all based on a, a, essentially a factory metaphor. And we used to think about building a business inside the four walls. So you'd have a sales department and a marketing department and an HR department. You'd have an IT department, believe it or not. And there's all these things you'd have inside the walls. And that's why bigger were, bigger companies often were better than smaller companies because they could afford better resource, right, better people. But now what's happening when people are building um, particularly fast-growth mid-companies, and I'm now seeing it even in the emerging small company market, is people are building their businesses um, like smartphones. So they're going to go, I'm going to be world-class at um, building business communities. So who's going to do my personal branding stuff? I'll use the attention seekers and Stanley Henry and his team. Who's going to run my subscriptions? I'll use Smart AR and Dave Birch and his team. Who's going to look after my um, events infrastructure and all the admin that goes with that but make it look like Ben's actually doing the work, which, of course, I never do any work? That'll be um, Alina and, and Alex over at Project 7 and so on and so forth. So, so the question when you've got a small business used to be how do I do it? The question now is um, who does it? No, rather, or, or how does it get done and then who does it? And so... When you get into this perspective of, okay, I've got this piece of work to do, how do I do it? Then it shifts your perspective, right? Mm. So let's just say, um, let's, let's look at um, uh, administrative, right? So you, you say, okay, well, I've, I've identified this amount of work. It's 25 hours a week if I was doing it or someone was doing it. Right. So what are my options? Option one, um, I'll hire someone to come to my office and do it. Option two, I'll hire someone in New Zealand to do it from home. Option three, I'll go and find a New Zealand-based company that does that work. And there's some really good ones, you know, the back office um, or Project 7 or Smart AR, depending on the work, right? Fantastic ones, you know, in New Zealand. Um, or you could go, actually, I know my business is growing and that's going to go from 20 hours a week to 50 hours a week to 100 hours a week. Um, but I don't want to outsource it. I want to have my own staff. So I'll go and talk to the people at Deployed and they will allow me to employ people in the Philippines, but they'll they'll do the hiring, they'll do the housing, they'll put the IT infrastructure, and they'll do that sort of stuff. Hmm. So you'd go to Deploy, another great Kiwi company based in Auckland. Or you could go, okay, I'm going to outsource it completely to a turnkey offshore outfit. Um, and then the last one is you just you go out into market um, using the various tools that are there. So if you want someone in tech, maybe GitHub, something like that, and you just hire people around the world, right? So, um, you know, you want people are really good at AI, Brazil, Ukraine, Russia. Huh. Um, so, um, you know, you've, you, you can now, you now look at the work and the tasks that are required and then you go, okay, now I'm going to think about how do I want them to get done? Is it going to be something that's going to scale? How much time do I want to spend supervising it? Because that's a question of, partner versus employee and so you ask those questions and then you make a choice hmm. 
Is there any unique challenges with how hiring people overseas? Like they have to be contractors because there's a different, I guess, employee rights over there or um, motivating them and keeping them accountable or the, the threat of them obviously doing something untoward to your online presence? Oh look, I mean, there's a there's a whole conversation on that. You need to have a chat to Jeff at Deployed. He can he could tell you this for about ninety minutes. But my observation of it is there's several things. So the first is if you if you're going to make the decision that you're going to be working with staff offshore or remotely generally, right? So not blended, but hundred percent remote. The first thing you got to do is actually get your head around the fact that you're going to have to run your business differently, right? So. Um, you know, when I used to have a whole bunch of staff and we're all in the office, I'd all, you know, poke my head out of the office and go, you know, hey, Ryan, you got to do this. Hey, Diane, I need this done. You know, that's, I call that managing by presence, right? Mm. It's like highly reactive. It, when you have people away, you're actually, instead of thinking about what they have to do, you actually start thinking about what they need to get done. It's called task-based working. What is the outcome I want? So, for example, Alex at Project 7, who's looking after some of my event stuff, She's got really clear tasks on a monthly rhythm of what needs to be the output that needs to be done. And then she has to go back and work out how to get to that point. Okay. So, you're, so you're managing quite differently. What I really like about it, because you know, I've had staff and I enjoy not having staff as well, is that if you can get it right, it's like working with a whole bunch of adults and it just feels, if you spend the time up front, then it feels it's working really well. Mm. But coming back to your point, yeah, look, there are, if you're going to hire people, so you're making a distinction here between contracting using one of the major platforms or, you know, um, you know, I used to have a woman, Carol, who used to work for me in the Philippines, and, and our deal was really simple. She got paid a week in advance via PayPal, right? I had no employment relationship with her. We had a letter of agreement. There's no ability of enforceability, right? If I didn't pay her, she's stuffed. But that's why she got paid in advance. That's why she took no risk. But once you start building teams in places like you know, the Philippines, you've got all the laws and that sort of stuff. And that's why I like the models like the deployeds if they're going to be your own staff because you're introducing a level of complexity that just is distracting. Mm. Yeah. So if they're independent contractors, a lot of them are just happy to be paid by PayPal or you know, one Stripe or whatever you happen to use as your system. Um, but if you're going to build teams, then you've got to get a little bit more deliberate. Yeah. Well, and Stan, that's how he, he got a, growing pretty quick. He's um, contracted out in Dubai and all around the world, and it's quite a quite a tricky thing because he had access to um, personal accounts and personal information, so you had to navigate that and have mm. really intense compliance, and he would use contractors as a means to mitigate against the employment variation in each country. Yep. Um, but, yeah, it's good to know there's a company called Deployed that sort of does that sort of thing. What 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 motivates you to do what you do then? What, what, what gets you up in the morning? Obviously, you've had these speed bumps that... Yeah, yeah. Look, I think for me, um, you know, I've got, I've got uh, a couple of kids. Uh, my son turned nineteen last, oh, yesterday, um, and I've got a fifteen-year-old daughter. And so I think, you know, as I, I was going through, I sort of got to a point where I was, I started becoming more interested about the impact I'd have than just what I could get out of having the business. And for me, you know, I used to look at these guys, especially when they were sort of under ten, and think, man, you know, I know this world's changing. I'm meeting some of the people around some of the top people around the world are telling us this i mean it's i could barely understand the impact of half of it 10 years ago and now i'm looking at it and it's actually existing how am i going to make sure that they and their friends are all okay so so for me you know the real thing is you know i get buzzed by you know by building prosperous communities if i can do that i reckon i make a difference i can leave something behind and at the same time i can have a good business and a good life mm. yeah good answer there mm. 
Well, we always try and tie in um, finance in some level, even though it's uh, obviously we're not talking about it too much. But yeah, what you're talking about, um, there's a certain level of freedom. And um, I, I like to ask the question, like, what's a person's version of financial freedom? Yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, what would yours be? Well, I'd preface, preface it by saying that financial freedom looks different depending on your stage of life. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, you know, for us over the last few years, we'd made some choices about schooling. You know, financial freedom for us was to make sure the mortgage was paid, the kids could go to the schools that we <coughs> wanted them to go to, and that we could, you know, get overseas to see my wife's sister. And have, and, and that for us was, you know, that, that was how we want it, right? Mm. Um uh, you know, we're going to blink and these guys are going to be gone from the house. Well, actually, these days they never leave. But, um, you know, I won't have to worry about the four-term four school year. And then from that point, you know, financial freedom for me is perhaps less time committed to the business, more time where my wife and I can travel and do some of the other things that we've got on our list. Mm. When we get a bit older than that, then, of course, it's, you know, that'll that'll shift again. Um, smart small is that what like you know you're talking about those small businesses that well you might be a large yeah. business or medium but that concept of having that lifestyle and being down the boat ramp and then going yeah. free diving and having fun and yeah i mean it's you know the old happy and small it could be that or just happy and small so yeah, yeah, yeah. no 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 it's right and it's um but also you know i i really enjoy growing businesses so um, you know, I, I'm not one of these people who's sort of watching the clock and waiting for 65 to grab the old gold card. You know, I don't see that my life will change pace, but I don't see it will stop mm. from where I'm standing today. Yeah, you yeah. never know, right? Touch wood. <laughs> we say um, re, re, instead of retire, re, retread. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a really good call. There's there's a big problem too. Um, I mean, slightly above your generation in terms of age, they um. They, they didn't have much outside of work. Maybe their, their friends would start um, uh, going in with their families and mm. didn't necessarily have the hobbies that they once had and then their, their health would start decaying because they didn't have purpose. They lost yeah. their work and they just – you've got to have that balance. I think it sounds like you've got a balance of both um, where you've got the, the outsourcing because what are you working for? I mean I, I wake up and I'm, I enjoy coming in. Similarly, I'm not going to wait till 65. Mm. Oh, yeah. But there has to be something to fulfill you outside of the dependency of work. Yeah, look, it's, you know, in the simplest terms, I think it was Maya, and, you know, I can always say a name wrong, you know, someone to love, something to look forward to, something to do. I butchered that. But there's, but if you think about it, you know, um, I've always liked, um, I always liked getting the question right. And there was always that question of the meaning of life. But actually the question really is what gives your life meaning? And when you really distill it down, I mean, you can go all stoic and talk about when you're dead and everyone's talking at your funeral. But when you really distill it down, it's like it's family, you, you know, family you love, it's your friends that you get on with, it's um, the types of things you like to do. So for me, as you mentioned, you know, free diving, I like getting in the water, still doing my surf, life-saving, love that. Um, but, you know, for someone else, it might be fixing a car or someone else might be embroidery. It doesn't actually matter. Mm. It's just finding your way to that stuff. And I do have a number of friends who are, you know, 10 years older and they're navigating it. And I notice that even those who are really engaged with life, it does take a period of time to navigate that shift, usually yeah. about two or three years. And then suddenly they go, oh, man, I don't know how I used to work full time. But it is quite a, it's quite a wrench to make the shift in my observation. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of people do just go, like, I think there's a survey, 70% of people don't enjoy their work. 
Yeah, that's just that's really upsetting, eh? It is. It yeah. is. And I mean, obviously, in your line of work, being business, going out on your own, you have certain challenges and stresses, and you have to manage that and mitigate that. But it's just something so freeing about having that ability to do what you want in the way that you want. And what what would be so obviously you've got a skill set you've de- developed over time, and you've got this swim lanes you call them, honey, mm. different swim lanes that people can incorporate and use the smartphone, but like business instead of the factory. What what would you do um, if you were coming in and you're uh, you had to help this mid-sized business, and then Ben comes in. He's gonna, he's gonna help out. He's gonna strategically do certain things. What would be, what would that look like, and how would you do it? Well, I think the first thing is is actually ask that question you asked. I mean, what what really gets you going? Okay. And you know, if you can get the purpose and the values piece right first, I think it makes a huge difference. So, for a lot of people outside of um, straight financial challenges, if the business isn't hitting enough numbers, you know, it's it's really really hard. It just is, right? And you know. But outside of that, generally the next biggest challenge is people. Mm. And so for some reason, and I've been, I've been here before several times, is you tend to hold on to the people who make your life hard sometimes. Mm. So more often than not, getting really clear about what, what's actually the purpose here and how does it align to who you are as the owner? You know, what are the values that actually matter to you? Because those are the values of the business. Um, don't mix that up with permission to play. You know, permission to play is have they got integrity? <laughs> are they honest? Do they turn up? You know, mm. that's that's those aren't values. Those are permissions to play. You know, if you haven't got those, why'd you hire them in the first place? But after that, if you can get those pieces and and then they really get it and they want it and they want to be with you, and then then you, I mean, tell you what, it just makes life so much freer. Then after that, well, it really depends on aspiration. You know, if you're wanting to grow, then you're going to look in one direction. If you're trying to create a life that has more time in it then you look in another direction makes yeah. sense we used to so i used to do the recruitment um and training for a sales team and i wouldn't experience almost or as a negative because they came in with a full cup with yeah. selling i mean it's a creative experience if you come with a full cup you're not going to learn and develop mm. and you're not going to understand the unique industry that you're in but when you when you bring someone in it's like the analogy with a bus you wouldn't get on a bus if you don't know where it's going mm. And I think a lot of a lot of organisations like that. You know, there's a vision that you're working towards. There's an art though, so it's I find it easy enough to find people with the right values mm. and combine to a vision. But then you have to have someone with a di- different mental mind map. So there's going to be people that might have similar values in terms of integrity, or mm. they they want to uh, they have compassion and they want to be part of an organisation contributing to that. Yeah. But then they're going to be very scarce or very focused. Or on process, and yeah. whereas I'm more big picture and innovation. Like, how do you navigate the vision and values, and then making sure you have different competency and mental mind maps? Well, I think it's important to have, right? And so, this idea of diversity of thinking, diversity of approach, is fundamental when you're building a business. So, if you are the big picture entrepreneur, wave your hands, do all that sort of stuff, like I am, um, the pursuit of detail is, you know. If you do the old, what am I good at? What do I love? Well, down in the corner of I'm not good at and I don't love is detail. So I've got to hire someone to do that, right? Or in this case, I partner with companies to do that. So you've got to get quite deliberate at actually hiring your weaknesses. Mm. That's, an, that's an opportunity. And by that, you get the strength. Um, now, look, they might present as, as less, less extrovert or less open or those sort of things but they'll still have the they'll still demonstrate the values and you're trying to do that so that the people can get the tasks done right and you can get more done 
Makes sense. And that's diversity of thought. Yeah. How do you navigate those conversations when you've got um, a different way of thinking? Well, I usually start by apologizing for myself, right? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't do the detail. I don't yeah. want to. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Or, or you know, for for, for a really um, for, for um, people who do that, uh, who are very good at process, they like consistency, all right? So, so, and for someone who's really entrepreneurial, and particularly with my personal style, which is I tend to think out loud. So what I say at the start of the conversation might change. Yeah. That's frightening for a process-oriented <laughs> yeah, yeah. person, right? So is. I'll start by um, by apologizing. I'll also tell them to tell me if they think I'm going off track because, of course, there's a hierarchy in this and you, you want them to feel that they can say that. Mm. But also, as a, you know, you lead, you manage, and you hold people to account if you're owning these businesses. You have to get quite deliberate. You have an opportunity to get quite deliberate so you can manage and you can manage yourself in that presence rather than just... You know, I'm five coffees in and my, aim, my hands are waving and I've got this really cool idea because I went out on the boat in the weekend, you know. <laughs> so um, so you get conscious on how you do it, yeah. There's, uh, I think, Influence Ecology. Um, Drew Knowles, he spoke at our event one time. You yeah, know him. he's a legend, absolutely yeah. legend. Great yeah. man, great man. Yep. It's, uh, yeah, he's a good salesman too. So he talks about the strategic model of um, where to bring people in and a different idea. Yeah. It's a... I think it's a common one. I don't know. I can't remember the specifics, but you have the judge, you have the people person, you have the innovator. And the performer, yeah. Yeah. Look, there's a bunch of those models. I think what's really helpful about them is they get you thinking about the different types of people you want. So they're not a template and mm. they're not gospel um, and they're definitely not a label to judge people against, but <laughs> very, very helpful to get a mental framework of how you actually want to do it. You know, especially once you start going past five to ten people. Yeah. What well, makes sense? I mean, like you have these things like love languages or um, some templates that you can use for organizations or ideas and uh, processes that you can implement. But really, it's just a, a facet or a, it allows you to communicate to them. Like it gives you a framework to start communication. Yeah. I think, in a general sense, like if you're empathetic and trying to understand where that other person's perspective is and then you're just communicating that towards a vision and value so you're consistent in that sense yeah you'll, you'll be fine but yeah i just think that they're, they're there to help people that um either have scale and don't have the ability to to connect with someone like that mm. or they just the communication style is not necessarily strength and they they leverage off that as a means to reach the yeah that's point. true and and the end to it, of course, is that you know running a business with five people is different to running a business with fifteen, and it's very different to running a business with fifty. And most people who own a business that has twenty-five people started with one or two or five or something, right? So the owner slash leader is learning to go through those. Mm. And um, you know, I my general advice to that is you know work with a Drew Knowles or. Um, you know, work with someone like a Lee Poulton or somebody like that who who understands how to take you from one step to the other step and what the challenges are, so they can guide you. Because the challenges as you go into essentially um, unnavigated territory is you can't draw on your own experience because you don't have the experience. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, you know, um, there's some really really good models as you go up through those steps, and if you seek those out and get that help, then you can make that transition a lot more quickly. Particularly when you're coming out of the three to four million and you're getting to ten, which can happen quite quickly in a business, ten turnover, and then you hit another 
ceiling mm. and then you need a bit more help, that's typically when I would recommend someone talks to someone like Lee Paulden from Gravitas and then that will push you up to 30. But then you're onto another level, right, and then you've got to reset it. What, what, what happens? So let, let's say you're starting off, you're this happy small and you decide, all right, I'm going for it, and then you're going yeah. up, the, up the ladder. Is there common things that fall apart or become challenging as you try and grow to that next level? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's that classic thing that everyone's journey is unique, but the, but, the journey, but the framework of it isn't, right? If you think about, I think, you know, pre-COVID, there are about 24,000 companies turning over between 2 and 20 million. You know, that's just New Zealand. So globally, there's all these people have been through these stages, and there's a few models on them. I don't find the models particularly helpful because most of them are historically based. But they vary, you know, so, you know, when there's five of you and you just hang around, have a coffee and sort out what's going to get done, that's very different to when there's 25 of you and now you've actually got divisional heads who are responsible for sales or IT or finance or all those sort of things. You often end up bringing in different types of people as well at that point, right? So. Yeah. You know, a proper CFO when you're 35 people is very different to a finance manager when you're 15. So there are really, really simple and clear, you know, spaces where you you want to be getting that help. You know, and we had someone the other day call me and he said, oh, look, Ben, you know, we've just got to this level and uh, I've just realised that, you know, one of the people on my management team's not up to it and I've just realised I've got to hire two more. And I said, great, you know, take three months off leaders, go and sort that out. Here's three people I suggest you talk to. Get your framework right. And that's just classic. It was He knew it was coming because he'd taken advice. And now, but when he hit it, it's like it still, still feels like you're in the middle of a storm, right? Yeah. Where do I turn? Yeah, I imagine <laughs> they get chaotic. I can only go by other people's experiences. Yeah, right? yeah. But, you know, you get, you get through all of this, right? It's all been done before. What drives them then? Like, is it like you become so good at operating that it just starts happening or they had an overarching vision that they went for? Like, I usually find really successful people competent, uh, compensating for some level of inadequacy for, <laughs> you know, they're very confident in one area and very incompetent in others. And it's just like, they're, like for example, an Olympic athlete. So they, mm. went, they went really hard. They needed a level of motivation that was more than the average. Yeah. So they had to have something within themselves that was more than the average, a yeah. talent, a habit, and a discipline. Do you, what, what drives on to like, you know, once you've got enough money or once your business is enough or like what happens? Why do they- yeah, well, you know, firstly, I, you know, there is a thing called intrinsic motivation, you know, and intrinsic motivation is the thing you get up and that's what says, yeah, I'm going to go to the gym and yeah, I'm going to do this, right? Mm. You know, the, the, the opposite of that, of course, is you need someone to be telling you what to do and beating you with a stick, right? And so... They can go and work in corporate. We can't afford them in mid-market. So you've got some sort of intrinsic motivation. You're probably slightly insane because you're running your own business, right? So you know, if logic says, well, look, instead of taking this job and you get this money and you can have four weeks holiday, you can go out there and not know what you're going to make and do all of those things. You're probably slightly not wired normally. <laughs> um, you know, we call it the wild and um and the people out there are wild um and we also have a, we also have another joke at leaders um because of the style that we do our workshops we sort of joke that half the room has ADHD and the other half has dyslexia but i'm not convinced it's a joke actually i think it's probably pretty close to true huh. so they're already a lot of the people who are growing those um, businesses that are moving quite quickly have an intrinsic motivation. They often see the world differently. They don't know they see the world differently, but they do. Okay. It's quite a common thing that I see. Um, some people are motivated by money, and that's actually okay. You know, if they if they're doing good to the community, I mean, business is really important, right? It 
goods and services, it supports its staff, it pays its taxes, it does all that sort of stuff. But most people I see now have some form of other idea or contribution they want to make. You know, mm. We're all telling ourselves little stories in our heads here. Um, and so that seems to be the thing. For some people, it's just the sheer challenge. You know, can I make this thing? Mm. Can I have this impact? You know, for some people, it's, you know, if I get this platform right, 100,000 people are going to be able to make their own living by using this platform. Wouldn't that be cool? So they're quite different motivations. I, I don't think there's a right one or a wrong one. I've seen some very, very successful people who do it straight, straight out of greed. They're not my sort of people, but that's okay. So um, in the end, they've got a f- there's there's some sort of motivation. I'm not sure that sure that they're running from the weakness necessarily, um, but they're certainly generally a little unusual <laughs> in a nice way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've welcome, got to be diplomatic. Welcome to my tribe. <laughs> yeah. Oh well, uh, I am one, right? So uh, you know, you know, I'm just I'm ununemployable. So that's why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Well, it worked for you. Yeah, well, the money thing's an interesting one. Like, I have seen people that are successful at it. They also sometimes have a lifestyle that's so so high and so costly that it keeps them motivated by mm-hmm. money. Mm-hmm. But then the challenge becomes, like, sometimes you go on business and you might not make a whole lot of money straight away or there'll be periods where you're not. Yeah. I wonder how they get through that in terms of a motivation standpoint. They're extrinsically motivated. Well, there's a lot to be said for you know having to go home and and look your partner in the eye and say there's no money today. Mm. Um, you know, running a, running a mid market business, running any business really is, is is more like farming than working in a corporate. Right. So um, inherently, your family are involved in this journey if you've got a business because the business owner eats last. That's the maths of it. There is no other way. So. The families are sort of inexplicably connected, so that's quite a motivation to people to provide. Um, it's also really important for support. Mm. Um, I, I have yet to meet somebody who hasn't had a really tough time in business, mm. either emotionally or financially, or for or whatever reason. So the motivations in those circumstances often come from that broader piece of you know who am I providing for. A little bit of ego. Um, yeah. Just the reality of the situation, the cost of failure can be very high. As I said, in New Zealand, the cost of failure is often a lot higher than in other countries in business. Mm. So the idea of just throwing it into Chapter 11 and walking away, can't do it. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of different things. And, and in the end, you don't know how you're going to deal with it until you're there. The one thing I can say is if you own a business, you will get there one day. Mm. As in you will have your bad times. You know, it might be a staff member who dies. It might be a financial issue. It might be a customer who's thirty percent of your business decides to shift. Yeah, who knows? But you will have those bad times. It's inevitable. And from that farming analogy, is there? Because we used to have to train people how to explain their job to their partner back when we were oh. doing the commissionally selling. Because yeah. it's a hard job. It takes time. You might not necessarily get the money you want. And and the number one reason they would quit was because of what they went home to. Hmm. So we actually incorporated that as part of it to uh, decrease turnover. But yeah, <laughs> to have that discussion. So like you're going into business, you've got a partner or there's ups and downs. Is there any advice you give in terms of navigating that conversation or what other business owners have done? They try to keep them at a distance and they share their hardships to other people or what are they? Well, I think, I mean, there's a variety of approaches. You know, I generally find, you know, a situation with, 
partners and, or in my case, a wife, uh, it does pay to be pretty upfront with what's going on. Okay. Um, but, you know, I have seen it in the past where I've seen people go into an entrepreneurial business who I believe was suited for it, who actually then went back to working for others because that wasn't what his wife had married into. And so, you know, if you're not, if, if the home life's not temperamentally suited for the level of risk that's involved, you've got to ask yourself why you're going to do it and what risk you're willing to take. Um, you know, some people, you know, uh, as we like to joke, just want to marry the local GP and have the good life, right? And if that's what that person's done and then you come home and say, woohoo, I've got this really cool idea and we're all going to be multimillionaires, but in the meantime we're going to have a shit time and miss the mortgage payments – uh, and though there won't be any more holidays to Fiji for a while, they may not buy into that. Yeah. That's just going to be how it is, right? So you've got to make that call. Yeah, right. Hmm. Tough call. Do, yeah. Um, yeah, like so So obviously you're, you're, the other thing that comes with business is, uh, well, a certain level of work ethic. You know, you, yeah. you've got to put in the graft. Greg, um, business associate, says um, focused attention equals results or focused action equals results. Without a doubt. So how how do you navigate that quality time? I know this is getting a bit personal, but it's uh-huh. just, it's interesting. You've got an established relationship. You've been through things with her, and yeah, she's insane. She's never married me. Um, <laughs> you know, we we're in the process of scaling another business, unrelated business, up at the moment, and uh, you know that means that this week I'm not going on holiday with my family at school holiday time. And you know, I flagged that about three weeks ago. COVID had slowed down the some activity I knew that that was so you just got to be out there and say look this is what's happening this is what the rhythm's looking like this is when I will be available or whatever it is um and they've got to be cool with it too you know hmm. okay so it's just open transparent communication and give as much framework as you can I mean consistency as you can with what you got yeah my experience of relationships is you know the less surprises the better and less than nice surprises right <laughs> <laughs> Wise words. I'm taking note, mate. My PB's only been two years of a relationship, so I'm right. You know, I'm taking. I'm listening. Uh, well, you got plenty of time yet, Ryan. I have hope. I have hope. Optimistic, you know. <laughs> Good on you. <laughs> so I'm. Um, I'm thinking as well. Like it, it's we we come to an end of that. What would be um, something that you would want either the future to be like for your kids, because it's one of the big visions that you have, or that you want the audience members, if someone's listening medium business owner or small business owner or what's something that you'd like them to know as we wrap this up? Well, I think for the kids, you know, we just want them to be happy. And it's always a challenge because you know they have to go through the hard times to get to the good times. That's how it works. Um, I don't have any particular piece of advice on that one. Uh, for the mid-sized business owners, um, my underlying message is, the world's changing too fast. You can't do it alone anymore. So what I mean by that is that more often than not, the disruptions that are coming into industries, well, there's two things. One is the pace. So goodness, I've still got them actually. You know, when I started out in business 20 years ago, we used to write five-year plans, not strategy. This is my goal, but the entire plan, you know, who's doing, what's doing, when it's being done. You can't do that anymore. Right? You can. You definitely have to have a strategy. You need to know where you're going, but your check-ins are on 90-day cycles. The other piece is that more that is assisted to that is that more often than not, a lot of the changes that are swinging in towards us are coming from outside our industry, 
And generally, we're pretty well connected inside our industry. We go to the conferences. We know the people. We're off in New Zealand. We're often mates with our, with our biggest competitors, or at least know them, right? Um, so, um, you know, if you imagine sitting in a media company going, oh, yeah, yeah, those tech guys don't know what they're doing. <laughs> Who would ever use Facebook? Um, and then the smartphone came along and it exploded, and now the media's gone. You've got to be able to see what's going on elsewhere Otherwise, you're just not going to have enough context to make the choices. So you can't go it alone. Whether that means you join a business community like mine, or you, um, you know, you engage with a coach, or you whatever you happen to do, um, you've got to get out there and get connected and be curious. Read YouTube, figure out what it is, watch it, you know, because you know the future's here. You just need to see it before it comes and smacks your business. Yeah, okay, good point. And where would be the best place to find you if people suddenly are inspired by this podcast and want to know more? And uh, LinkedIn, Ben Maris on LinkedIn, M-A-R-R-I-S. Try me there. Cool. I'll put it in the description. Might put uh, NZ Leaders in there as well. Yeah, that'll be cool. Thank you, Ryan. Oh, that's right. Thanks for coming along. Pleasure. And also, uh, cheers to nzaudioeditors.com. Um, I don't know how he's going to save this audio, but if he does, it's a miracle. And it's a good indicator you should use them. Fantastic. Cheers. Great. Thanks, mate.